Our speaker for this year's missions conference is certainly no stranger to Coast. Uh, Dr. Jody Dillo is uh, 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 just a wonderful uh, man of God and missionary of Coast Bible Church. Uh, he received his Ph.D. from Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, he's the author of, of several books and publications. The one that most of you know uh, or most familiar with is Reign of the Servant Kings. And we have a display copy over there and only a display copy because we're waiting for the revision to Reign of the Servant Kings. Jody, when's it coming? July. All right. So uh, his his uh, book is his one of his great works is about to be revised and printed available in July of this year. So we're really looking forward to that. Uh, he previously served on the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, family life has been a uh, professor at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, they've he and his wife, Linda, have served overseas and are uh, most recently have been the, the founders and uh, uh, of, of B Ministries, uh, Biblical Education by Extension, which is a great ministry that trains pastors internationally and all over the world uh, in the fundamentals of the faith, uh, in word and doctrine, and also in practical ministry. And so uh, some, of, uh, some, of, uh, some have wondered, uh, why, a, a, uh, why such a teaching-oriented conference? Well, at the end of the day, if missions isn't about teaching, then I don't know what missions is about. Because missions, the core of missions, as Jesus said in the Great Commission, is to go to the ends of the earth and make what? Disciples. Disciples. Teaching them to obey. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if missions isn't about teaching, then we have something wrong in our missions approach. We have many kinds of missionaries at Coast. And Jody, Dr. Dillo, happens to be one of those who are, is very much more teaching-oriented. And we appreciate that. And so tonight, we've asked him to come. He'll have two sessions tonight, two tomorrow morning, and then a culmination on uh, Sunday morning. Uh, his topic is A Brief History of Eternity. Would you please give a real warm welcome to Dr. Jody Dillo. Good evening. It's good to be here. I've been looking forward to being with you. Okay. For a number of years, the subject of cosmology has fascinated me. Out with all those big scientific words hasn't scared you. Uh, we'll uh, explain it very, uh, very carefully. But the one of the things that has uh, really interested me is the question of why did God create? Why are we here? Uh, what is the purpose of human existence? And the reflections that I'm going to introduce you to the next cup tonight and tomorrow morning are all going to deal with that and revolve around it. Uh, this has had quite a personal impact on my life as I have sought to understand how I can identify my own life purpose with God's purposes, which I think is ultimately the key to finding meaning and significance. Why don't we uh, open in a word of prayer and just ask God to, to meet us. Father, we do pause to give you thanks that you do have a wonderful purpose for each of us, and it's grounded in an eternal plan. 
We pray that as we consider some of these scriptures together that you might be present, bringing encouragement, illumination, perspective on life and its meaning. Pray that you'd keep my mind focused. I pray that you'd help me to be clear and that you would be speaking through me to these dear people. So we just trust this evening to you now, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this first session is going to be a little more lengthy, and then the second session will be much less lengthy, and with time for Q&A. I want to give you as much time just to ask any questions you have, but I want to set a context for the, uh, during this first uh, time together. On uh, Christmas Eve in 1968, the astronauts from the other side of the moon took a picture that many of you may have seen on television or certainly broadcast in news magazines around the country. They called it Earthwise, or or, excuse me, Earthrise, R-I-S-E. And the two astronauts were Lovell and Borman, and they were looking at the Earth from 250,000 miles away. And Lovell told, it was quite impressed. As far as he was concerned, this, this image spoke to him very significantly of a grand purpose, of a grand design. Bill Anders, on the other side, on the other hand, who was the third guy in the, in the, uh, the capsule, and also the one who took the picture, He came to the opposite conclusion. He looked at this and he said, the earth is just a tiny dot, has no insignificance. It floats in the emptiness of space. We're nothing but ants on a log. So even with a crew of three people, you had two different interpretations. And these interpretations, of course, persist throughout the academy which mainly takes the former interpretation that there is no meaning or significance. Uh, two years ago, my wife surprised me with an uh, uh, anniversary present. It was a Scientific American cruise in the Caribbean. There was about 3,000 people on the boat, but there was 120 of us uh, do, with these lectures on cosmology. And it was a bunch of professors and practicing scientists and engineers and me. And I could tell from the outset that uh, this was going to be an atheistic approach. I wasn't there to argue with them. I was there mainly just to find out what they believe and why. Lawrence uh, Krauss, who is a popular writer and Scientific American, very well-known cosmologist, opened his first lecture saying something along these lines. He says, my purpose this week is to convince you that there is absolutely no meaning or significance to human life. That's a violation of a principle of homiletics. You're not supposed to start out with a negative like that. You want to encourage people. But he's an atheist, so for him there is no meaning. It's all insignificant. And as far as he's concerned, scientific research uh, establishes that fact. Now, The reason that science has come to this conclusion is largely related to three things, and I want to introduce these uh, tonight, and we'll respond briefly to them. Assuming our uh, sound is okay here. 
Polish astronomer Nicholas Copernicus ignited a revolution. In his book on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres, Copernicus argued that the Earth was not stationary, but instead orbited with the other planets around the sun. For the first time, a correct understanding of the mechanics and structure of the solar system was inside. The idea of the moving Earth seemed to violate some fundamental principle. Copernicus somehow had the mental power to imagine what even to him seemed absurd. So he thought the impossible. The Earth moves. And once you imagine the Earth moving instead of the Sun, um, the mathematics of that cosmic machine started to make sense. It was the key that unlocked one of the great mysteries of the universe. Copernicus has laid the cornerstone for modern astronomy. Yet, 400 years after his discovery, the empirical fact that our planet was not the center of the solar system had evolved into what is now known as the Copernican Principle. The idea that the Earth occupies no preferred place in the universe. Copernicus had a theoretical way of explaining the apparent motion of the planets across the sky. That's all it was. It wasn't a theory that told us whether or not Earth was special, or whether we played some importance in the scheme of things, or whether every place in the universe was the same as every other place. Nevertheless, this reinterpretation of Copernicus became prominent in the 20th century. It's often called the principle of mediocrity. This principle says that our location and our status are mediocre, they're unexceptional. As a result, we should not assume that we are in any way privileged or that the universe was designed with us or beings like us in mind. The Copernican principle and the concept of the Earth's insignificance was popularized during the 1970s and 80s by the late astronomer Carl Sagan. In his best-selling book, Pale Blue Dot, Sagan wrote, Because of the reflection of sunlight, the Earth seems to be sitting in a beam of light, as if there were some special significance to this small world. But it's just an accident of geometry and optics. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. Our postures, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. When I was at Cornell University working with Campus Crusade for Christ, Sagan was on the faculty there. And uh, <clears throat> I was working with a number of graduate students in astrophysics that uh, tried to witness to him. Uh, and it was a pretty uh, blank wall. Uh, Professor Sagan died a number of years ago. Um, but he represents the academy, uh, utter meaninglessness of human life. And this Copernican revolution was very significant psychologically. I think you and I take it for granted, uh, correctly or incorrectly, that, you know, the universe is big and, you know, we're just someplace in it. But up to the time of Copernicus, man had a sense that he was at the center. In fact, he thought he was at the geographical center. This started with Aristotle, and uh, man believed that for almost 2,000 years. 
but when Copernicus said, no, the earth is moving around the sun instead of the sun around the earth, there was a great psychological shift that went on in Western culture because it was thought to be uh, something that refuted the biblical concept that we had special significance, that we were in a special place, that the earth and man on it had a unique purpose uh, in the eternal purpose of God. But there was a second factor, and that's the size of the universe. Up until the time of Copernicus and Galileo, and more recently, 1926, with Edwin Hubble, um, it was believed that the universe was r relatively small. Uh, but then when Hubble at Mount Wilson Laboratory in 1926 began to chart the stars and these galaxies, he discovered that they were retreating. And he discovered that what was known as the Andromeda Nebula wasn't a ne within the Milky Way galaxy wasn't a nebula at all, but it was another galaxy. And then they found out that there's billions of galaxies. We're just one of billions of hundreds of billions of trillions of stars. And all of a sudden, there was a psychological confirmation and a shift that continued that we really are significant, like Sagan says, we're just a little blue dot in the midst of cosmic emptiness. And of course, the, uh, the third thing that affected this was the theory of evolution. Uh, when Darwin came up with this, it was, uh, they now had a plausible explanation for the origin and the development of life that didn't require a creator. So a combination of these three things gave the academy all of the ammo it needed to completely reject any supernaturalistic worldview. And of course, this permeates the academy today. Well, what then is the meaning of our existence from a biblical point of view? Uh, Sagan says that the cosmos is all that is or ever will be. Uh, there's a very well-known uh, cosmologist, uh, he's a Nobel laureate by the name of Steven Weinberg. He read an excellent book on, uh, excuse me, on uh, the Big Bang Theory. It's called The First Three Minutes, in which he uh, outlines what happened in the first three minutes of the so-called Big Bang. And he concludes, I, always, I read a lot of these books and I, I, uh, many times I jump to the last chapter because they, a lot of them start getting uh, speculative at that point. They, and they, they try to deal with a question of, the, of what is the meaning of it all. Well, <clears throat> Weinberg says this, the more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it seems pointless. Well, what solace does he offer? Uh, what is the significance of man? What are we supposed to do with this pointless situation that the universe has cast upon us? Listen, here's his answer. The effort to understand the universe is one of the very few things that lifts human life a little above the level of farce and gives it some of the grace of tragedy. Now, one can sympathize with Weinberg that the pain he must feel to summarize the final significance of his life in such pointless terms. But we can also appreciate his honesty, because on materialist presuppositions, not much more than that can be said. Sagan said that the cosmos is all there is or ever will be. Is that correct? 
Well, Stephen Hawking thinks so. He says, so long as the universe had a beginning, we could suppose it had a creator. But if the universe is really completely self-contained, having no boundary or edge, it would have neither beginning nor end. It would simply be. What place then for a creator? I study a lot at uh, Cambridge University at the Tyndale House, and it turns out that Hawking, uh, I don't know if he still is, but he's a professor of astrophysics and cosmology there. I'd love to get in on some of those lectures, but I'm not uh, entitled, unfortunately. <clears throat> but is that correct? Is it true that there never was a beginning? I remember when I was working with Campus Crusade at uh, Cornell University, I, what, we, what we did a lot is go take surveys in the student unions and whatnot, and I'd go up to some college student who was looking for an excuse not to study, that, sitting in the student union, say, hello, I work with a student Christian movement here on campus, and we're trying to collect opinions from various students on various religious issues. You've got a few minutes. Of course, you know, that's few minutes they don't have to study, so it's pretty easy to engage college kids in a, uh, in a conversation. So I, I took my survey, and then I started a discussion with this young man, and I asked him about his religious views, and he said, well, I've only got one, and I said, well, what's that? He said, well, there's no evidence for the existence of God. And I said, really? He said, absolutely. It's a matter of faith, and I don't have it. Now, faith for him was uh, the, the same view shared in popular culture. Faith is a belief for which there's absolutely no evidence. It's kind of a blind leap is how popular culture, you see it in the media all the time. All you have to have is faith, you know. The, the object of faith doesn't seem to be important in, in popular culture. Well, that's where this, this guy was. He held to Mark Twain's definition uh, faith, said Twain, is believing something that any darn fool knows isn't true. Now, since this uh, young guy was an engineer, I asked him to explain to me if he understood the second law of thermodynamics. Well, he was a little rusty, so I offered help. These two uh, laws that we're going to talk about here are probably the most fundamental building blocks of uh, modern physics. The first one, the law of conservation, says that energy, mass and energy, cannot be created or destroyed. They can change from one form to another, but, but uh, there's no new stuff being created. Now, of course, as soon as you look at the origin of the universe, you've got some new stuff being created, so they have a little problem with that, and they're trying to figure out ways that, well, there must have been some energy before that changed into mass, but we won't get into all of that. So it's a straight line. If you look at the total amount of energy in the universe on the vertical axis over time, it doesn't vary. And the total amount of energy is the energy available to accomplish work plus the uh, free energy. Now, there's a, the second law, on the other hand, uh, defines that energy available to do work. If I take this uh, coffee cup right here and I move it, 
Well, the uh, donut I had this afternoon, uh, that was a lot of energy and calories in that, and that just went into that coffee cup to move it across the top of the desk. Uh, and when it moved across the top of the desk, believe it or not, there was a little heat expended because there was friction between the coffee cup and the top of the desk. Now, where'd that heat go? went up here. So there was a certain amount of energy available for work that was lost. All that calories in that uh, donut uh, now have been lost for useful work. So the second law says that the total amount of energy available for work has now been disseminated. It's gone. You cannot recapture that energy, shove it back into the coffee cup and bring it back. Another way of looking at it is that the second law suggests that all systems tend toward disorder. In other words, they move from order to disorder with the passage of time. So I drew this little thing out on a napkin to this young man, and I said, you notice something here. There's an intersection point. And what that means is that prior to that intersection point, mass and energy could not exist. You can't have more energy available to do work than there is total energy in the universe. So everything to the left of that intersection point suggests nothing. Well, if the universe, if it's nothing, then how did the universe come into existence out of nothing? Uh, I've been reading a book, I haven't finished it yet, by Lawrence uh, Krauss, who's trying to speculate on this, because he sees the implications of this. You got nothing before the Big Bang. and uh, So uh, <laughs> it's almost humorous, because the guy is so brilliant. But he, he, he zeroes in on, well, we need to reconsider the definition of nothing. And maybe nothing isn't nothing. And uh, it just shows you anything but God, anything but a transcendent supernatural order, uh, because if it involves that, then it's, quote, not science. Science can only deal with a totally closed system of cause and effect in a material universe. Paul Davies, a very prominent physicist, says in different words what I just did, said on that little diagram. Every day, the universe becomes more and more disordered. The total amount of energy available to accomplish work is being disseminated, therefore it can't hold stuff together, therefore the universe gets more and more disordered. If the universe has a finite stock of order, the universe cannot have existed forever. Otherwise, it would have reached its equilibrium state at an infinite time ago. Now, modern cosmologists believe that the entire universe started 13.7 billion years ago from a point of infinite density. Now, if you read the books, and you, some of them will wrestle with the meaning of the term infinite density, and some of them even admit we don't know what infinite density is, and uh, so they have a, another word for it. They call it a singularity. That sounds a little less impossible than infinite density. What, you know, what is infinite density? And how, I mean, how could something infinite amount of mass be? Well, at any rate. So, uh, but there, there, are, there is some good evidence that the universe is expanding. Uh, if a train or a car, let's say you're standing by a railroad track and a train is coming at you, the closer the train gets, the higher the whistle It'll, it, it goes up in tone. But then when it passes you, it'll go, whoom. 
because it's going away from you. Well, same thing happens to light. It's called a redshift. And if the galaxies are moving away from us, the light is redder than it should be. If it's coming toward us, it's bluer than it should be. Well, what Hubble discovered, and there's been all kinds of confirmation of this since, is that as they look at these galaxies, they're red, redder than they should be. They're moving away from us. Furthermore, they speculate, uh, it's not just speculation, they've got a lot of, a lot of data they're building on, but uh, that the universe starting in this Big Bang over a period of 13.7 billion years as it expands, it cooled. Now, you see that all the time. You lift the uh, lid off of a boiling uh, pot of water and uh, the, the temperature drops because it's expanding. The steam is expanding. And they calculate that if the universe is, in fact, expanding and it's that old, then today the temperature, it's, they call it the uh, cosmic microwave background uh, radiation, uh, the temperature should be 2.7 degrees Kelvin, which is uh, three degrees above absolute zero. Well, lo and behold, the Bell Lab, a couple of Bell Lab scientists in the 60s, looking at all that white static we used to see in our uh, TV screens back in the uh, 50s, uh, because, you know, they shut it off after the Star Spangled Banner, and it just nothing, you know, those of you my age will remember that. <coughs> and uh, you saw that white. And a percentage of that white was this cosmic background radiation, and it was 2.7 degrees, exactly like the Big Bang predicted. Now, all of this established very clearly that the universe, there, there's other evidences for the Big Bang, but I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. But all of this established in the minds of the academy that the universe is expanding and it cannot have been expanding forever because if, if it's of infinite age, it would already have expanded to an infinite amount, but it hasn't. So it must have had a beginning. Well, this is a very uh, strange development. Uh, one of the uh, prominent astronomers, Fred Hoyle, wrote a book, God and the Astronomers, and uh, he was responding to this new science and evidence that suggested that the universe had a beginning. Here's what he said. This is an exceedingly strange development. The development is unexpected because science has had such extraordinary success in tracing the chain of cause and effect backward in time. Now, we would like to pursue that inquiry further back in time, but the barrier of further progress seems insurmountable. It's not a matter of another year, another decade of work, another measurement, or another theory. At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain of the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. Now, is life on Earth unique? On this cruise I was on in the Caribbean, we went to Puerto Rico to the, uh, let's see, Serio... Uh, 
can't pronounce it. Anyway, there's a, uh, that's where the, the first dish was set up to search for extraterrestrial intelligence, or SIBO, yeah. And uh, it's a massive thing. It doesn't look too big there, but it's probably a football field across. And they're tuning in on uh, uh, radio signals from outer space, hoping to pick up something that has a pattern. It has a pattern that suggests an intelligent source. How many of you saw the movie Contact uh, by, with Jodie Foster? Good flick if you're into science fiction. My wife does not like science fiction. When she goes on trips, I watch science fiction movies. But <clears throat> I've always been fascinated by it. And uh, they're very serious about this, and they've spent a lot of money looking for extraterrestrial intelligence. So they call it the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, or SETI. Well, so up to this, up to this date, uh, they have found nothing. Um, no evidence whatsoever. But there is another line of approach which indicates that there may be an intelligence out there, one far above some aliens that might communicate uh, through radio signals. And I'd like to introduce you to some of this. Some of you may be familiar with it, but I found it quite fascinating. I got a lot of this out of a great book called Our Privileged Planet. None of these alien worlds know the stars or even offers a clear view of the sun. Now, of course, if you're suddenly transported to Titan or Venus or to one of the outlying gas giant planets, the lack of a clear view of the universe wouldn't be much of an issue because you'd be dead. But that's precisely the point. If we're right, if the conditions for habitability and scientific discovery appear in the same places, then you're going to get conditions like you do on Earth, an atmosphere that sustains complex life like ourselves and also enables scientific discovery of the universe around us. The virtues of such an atmosphere are continually tested. As the Earth moves through space, it is bombarded by radiation from throughout the universe. This radiation is emitted by the Sun and other celestial objects including supernovas and distant galaxies. It reaches our planet in wavelengths described as gamma, x-ray, ultraviolet, visible, infrared, microwave, and radio. Together, they comprise the electromagnetic spectrum. Almost all of these wavelengths are invisible to the eye and either lethal or useless to organic life. Yet within this spectrum of frequencies, a thin sliver of radiation proves essential to plants, animals, and human beings. In other words, there's really just a very narrow part of the electromagnetic spectrum that's going to be useful for living processes like photosynthesis. It's not as if life could have evolved to use gamma radiation or x-ray radiation or something like that. There's really just a narrow part of the spectrum that would be useful to life processes. Well, as it turns out, that's also the same narrow part of the spectrum that is the most informative about the various structures that we discover in the universe around us. These specific frequencies that enable plants to manufacture food and astronomers to observe the cosmos represent less than one trillionth of a trillionth of the universe's range of natural electromagnetic emissions. Fortunately, it is the type of light our sun produces in abundance. 
and that most easily penetrates the filtering sheens of our atmosphere to reach the surface of the Earth. It's a remarkable coincidence that the kind of atmosphere that's needed for complex life like ourselves does not preclude that life from observing the distant universe. It's a surprise. It's something that you wouldn't expect just chance to produce. Why would the universe be such that those places that are most habitable also offer the best opportunity for scientific discovery? Okay, let me repeat that final point. But there is no obvious reason why the wavelengths that are necessary for photosynthesis and hence for life should also be the wavelengths that human beings can see. There's no connection between these two. This is an incredible coincidence. And it suggests that God or some designer uh, wanted uh, us to be able to observe something, wanted life to be able to see something. We're going to return to this theme in just a minute. But a second criteria for habitable life is it has to be in the so-called Goldilocks zone or the, or the, habit, the habitable zone. Uh, this is a particular location within the, uh, the solar system. Uh, the planet has to be there. If it's too close, water will evaporate because it's going to be too hot. If it's too far, water will freeze and no life can exist. In fact, all it takes is about 5% closer and no life could, have, uh, could, could, could exist on Earth. It'd be like Venus. We'd have a runaway greenhouse with temperatures like uh, three, 400 degrees Fahrenheit. If it was 20% further away, uh, everything would freeze. So this Goldilocks zone is very uh, carefully defined, and our planet, planet Earth, just happens to fall in it. There's a number of other factors that I can't get into here, but it's got to be within the galactic habitable zone, which we're going to talk about in a moment. It has to orbit a main sequence uh, dwarf star, only certain kinds of stars. It's got to be protected by giant planets, because if, when you, if you have a planet that life is trying to form on, uh, it can be bombarded by asteroids and comets and meteors. And what happens with Jupiter and Saturn is that they protect the Earth from this. And without Jupiter and Saturn, these giant planets out there, life could not exist on Earth. It's got to be within the circumstellar habitable zone. We'll talk about that in a moment. It's got to be a nearly circular orbit. If it was too elliptical, the temperature differences would be so great that life could not form. Of course, it's got to be oxygen rich, and it's got to be the correct mass. Now, there's another uh, coincidence that has to exist. It has to be in the galactic habitable zone. If the planet upon which life was supposed to flourish was near the center of the galaxy, life would be destroyed. At the center of the galaxy, you've got black holes and supernova exploding, bombarding these planets, any planet that's that close in, uh, and life could not exist. So uh, it, it has to move out, but it can't move out too far. 
Uh, if it moved out to the far edge, the spiral arms of galaxies are quite dangerous. Uh, supernova actually uh, develop out there and they're full of dust. Now, if you're at the galactic center and you're trying to observe the universe, this is what you see, nothing. But if you're at a critical location in the galaxy, and it turns out that planet Earth is, you're in the spiral on the, on the edges, but, you're not, but these uh, spirals are loaded with dust. So you've also got to be in a place where there's no dust. Otherwise, you can't see anything. And it turns out that's precisely where the Earth is located. What this suggests is that the Earth is located at the best place in the galaxy for observation, for being able to see what's out there. And again, there's no logical reason between life existing and also being able to see, the, the, have the most visible uh, picture in view of, of the universe. Now, I'd like to introduce another aspect to this uh, argument for design. We've talked about the Goldilocks zone. We've talked about the fact that we have just the right atmosphere. We've talked about the fact that we're located in just the right place. All of these coincidences begin to line up. But one of the most amazing is the fine-tuning argument. Uh, a number of years ago, I read a fascinating book by Anthony Flew. I can remember back in the 60s and 70s, he was the, uh, how do you say it, the uh, most famous atheist. He's, and uh, he was professor of philosophy at Oxford and had written many books debunking uh, the existence of God, debunking creation, and arguing in favor of atheism. He had a, a very profound uh, effect on the academy. And, but a number of years ago, Flew, Anthony Flew became a theist, and he believed in, came to believe in God and began to believe in creation. He wrote a book in the 60s called There Is No God, and this new book that came out about six years ago is entitled There Is a God. And he, set, and he sets forth the line of thinking that led him to that conclusion that God must exist. He asked us to imagine that you take a vacation, say to Hawaii, and as you enter your hotel room, uh, the first thing you note is that the CD, CD player just happens to be playing your favorite recording. And you glance at the framed portrait over the bed, and to your surprise, it's identical to the one which hangs over your bed in your own bedroom at home. Well, amazed, you drop your bags in the floor and you open the minibar. And there you find a plate of your favorite cookies and a six-pack of your favorite beverage. You gaze around the room and you see a book on the bedside table, and it's written by your favorite author, Robert Ludlum. By now, you're on full alert. What's going on here, you think? So you turn on the TV and you find that it's tuned to your favorite TV station, 
Fox News. <laughs> and upon entering the bathroom, you're shocked even more. All your personal choices for grooming are laid out on the bathroom counter. It's Colgate toothpaste, it's Gillette for sensitive skin shaving gel, and your favorite stick of deodorant, Right Guard. Well, chances are that with each new discovery about your hospitable uh, hotel room, you'd be less and less inclined to believe that this was a mere coincidence. You might wonder, how did the hotel manager know all this? You might marvel at his meticulous preparation for your arrival. You might even call the front desk and say, how much is this going to cost? This is great. But you would certainly be inclined to believe that someone knew you were coming. Now, this illustrates the fine-tuning argument. During the past 40 years, scientists have determined the relative strengths of each of these primary laws and forces. These strengths are so critically balanced, they are often described as being finely tuned. If you were to take the basic fundamental constants of nature and you were to change these even slightly, or you were to pick their values at random, you would almost never get a universe that would be habitable in any sort of way. That is, you couldn't have galaxies, you couldn't have planets, you couldn't have complex biological organisms if these uh, fundamental constants were even slightly different, slightly stronger, slightly weaker than they actually are in this universe. That's the idea of fine-tuning. Returning to the illustration of the uh, hotel room uh, in Hawaii, you think, gosh, the clerk must have known I was coming. <clears throat> well, the universe is so finely tuned that physicist Freeman Dyson said, the more I examine the universe and study the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe, in some sense, knew we were coming. Back in the uh, 1980s, the intrepid Jean-Luc Picard of Star Trek Enterprise, Star Trek, uh, toured the galaxy searching for alien civilizations. Uh, as you can imagine, I loved Star Trek. I remember when the first one came out in the late 60s, I, this is fantastic. You know, my wife would go in the other room. How, how could anybody want to watch something so stupid, you know? And uh, anyway, I really loved it. And then, of course, when uh, Star Trek The Next Generation came out, I was glued. And I even went and bought all the DVDs so I could watch the reruns. Well, uh, Jean-Luc and the crew of Star Trek Enterprise had several encounters at a place called Farpoint. And while in this remote region of the universe, they encountered a race of obnoxious super beings called the Q. Now the Q are seemingly, seemingly omnipotent and an immortal species, and they live in the Q continuum, whatever that is. 
And they possess the ability of instant matter energy transformation and teleportation. It was fun to watch Q snap his fingers and all of a sudden he'd have a different suit of clothes on or whatever, you know. And uh, so they, uh, uh, they, they, because they had this control over space, matter, and time, they could do these spectacular things. And Q claimed to possess an IQ of 2005. They were first encountered by the crew of the USS Enterprise Series D at Stardate 2364 in an episode called Encounter at Farpoint. And among their many abilities was the ability to travel in time. Now, in our imaginary story, Q takes you back to the beginning of the Big Bang. And upon arrival, you enter a large room where a gigantic, complicated machine with many dials is located. I've tried to illustrate it here. On the, on the right-hand side, you've got all these dials that can be adjusted. Q explains that this is a universe-creating machine. And each of these dials have different fundamental constants of nature, like mass density, or the weak nuclear force, or the strong nuclear force, star mass, size of the sun, etc., According to Q, the great race of the Q used this machine to create the universe in which they live and the existing universe in which humans live. Q's, the Q, it seems, are the creators of everything. Well, the machine had a preview screen. You can see it in the lower left there. And it, which allowed the Q to view the outcome of setting the dials at various amounts to see what kind of universe would result when they press the create button. Q explains that these dials have to be set very precisely or the universe creating machine will spit out useless junk, which will be displayed on the preview screen. For example, if the gravitational constant is set just a little higher, the universe would collapse in a few seconds into a giant black whole. Well, you ask, how precisely do these dials have to be set? Well, after a few sneering comments about human intelligence, Q responds by saying that they found only one possible combination that produces a universe evenly mildly habitable. What is the number at the top of the keypad, you ask? Oh, Q explains, that's the grand unified combination. This is the only number that results in a habitable universe like our own. You can enter that number directly on the keypad just by pushing the buttons, or you can tweak the dials. And every time you turn the dial, the numbers change up there until you get the grand unified number. So you ask, do you mean that there are only two habitable universes? The one that Q live in and the one that you created? Q is getting a bit angry and he admits, well, no, there's just one. Now you're getting a little suspicious. There's only one combination of dials that must be set on the universe creating machine to produce our universe. How did you set those dials before you existed to set them? By what magic did you create the universe which you yourself live in? 
Well, aware that your baloney detector is going off and setting off alarms, Q admits, well, we didn't really set the right combination. In fact, the machine doesn't belong to us. We've just found it with the dials already set. The machine had done its work before we arrived. Ever since then, we've been looking for another combination that would produce a habitable universe. But we haven't been able to. Now, this little story illustrates the problem. One of the most startling discoveries of the last century. Because the universe described by its physical laws and constants has to be fine-tuned very precisely or you and I would not exist. Let's look at this in a bit more detail. Uh, physicist Mikio Kaku notes <clears throat> that this fine-tuning makes us realize that a miraculous set of accidents, I love it when these atheists use these terms, makes consciousness possible in this three-dimensional universe of ours. There is a ridiculously narrow band of parameters that makes intelligent life a reality. And we happen to live in this band. One can debate whether this fortuitous circumstance is one of design or accident. But no one can dispute the intricate attuning necessary to make us possible. Here's Stephen Hawking in his book, The Brief History of Time. The odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications. Now, even though the odds are enormous, in fact, I'm going to show you how enormous they are in a minute. And they know these numbers. They quote them in their literature. Anything is better than belief in God. Because, you know, I think the, the public has a belief that the, these are the conclusions of modern science. Really, uh, they're conclusions that fit within a certain paradigm. And the paradigm is that the universe is totally materialistic. All there is is mass and energy and cause and effect in the closed system. And there is no transcendent being that brought it into existence. That's not the conclusion. That's the starting point. Unfortunately, there's a court case uh, a couple of years ago that's even established that is the, quote, definition of science. It came out in some of these evolution uh, creation debates in, in the school system. Here's some examples of what we mean by fine-tuning. The gravitational constant. If it's higher, the universe will collapse. If it's less, it would expand too rapidly and the galaxies would never form. A strong nuclear force. This is what holds the protons and neutrons together in the nucleus. If it was 2% weaker or 0.3% stronger, no life would exist. The number of electrons. The number must equal precisely the number of protons or electromagnetic forces would overwhelm gravity. And stars would never form. If the number was off by 1 in 10 to the 37th, in other words, just 1 in 10, 10 with 37 zeros after it, there would be no stars. That's pretty tightly fine-tuned. Neutron mass. If it was 
0.1% more or less, life would be impossible. The habitable zone that we talked about earlier, the Goldilocks zone, if the Earth distance uh, differed by 2%, there'd be no life on this planet. Now, over the past two decades, science, scientists have begun tabulating many characteristics of our universe, our solar system, and the planet. Uh, and Dr. Hugh Ross, he's a, a Caltech uh, physicist, apologist. Uh, he wrote a great book called The Creator and the Cosmos, and he documents all of this stuff. In fact, that's I'm getting this stuff from, from Dr. Ross. Uh, Ross calculated that the probabilities of all these factors coming together by natural processes alone, in other words, all 40 of these things happening simultaneously in a, in, in a given universe, would be one chance in 10 to the 53rd. That's 10 with 53 zeros after it. Or a decimal point followed by 53 zeros. That's pretty, well, it's, basically it's impossible. And a very liberal estimate of how many planets, well, I won't get into that, it gets too complicated. So obviously, they've got a problem here. Someone knew we were coming. The whole universe is fine-tuned for life. Now, how did that happen? By chance. Well, Richard Dawkins, probably the most prominent uh, atheist, uh, well-known at least today, uh, see, he's a prophet, Oxford, I believe. And uh, anyway, here's his answer. Look, there are a number of great heavens on the earth. Why do you use the word who? You see, you, you, you immediately beg the question by using the word who. Well, um, by the very slow process. Well, how did it start? Nobody knows how, how that started. We know the kind of event that it must have been. We know the sort of event that, that must have happened for the origin of life. What was that? It was the origin of the first self-replicating molecule. Well, how did that happen? I've told you, we don't know. So you have no idea how it started? No, no. Nor no, no, has anyone. No, has anyone else. What do you think is the possibility that uh, intelligent design might turn out to be uh, the answer to some issues in uh, genetics or in well, evolution? It could come about in the following way. It could be that uh, at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization e evolved by probably some kind of Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this, this planet. Um, now, that is a possibility and an intriguing possibility. And I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the, um, at the B-cell, B-cells of biochemistry, molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer. Wait a second. Richard Dawkins thought intelligent design might be a legitimate pursuit? Um, and that designer could well be a higher intelligence from elsewhere in the universe. But that higher intelligence would itself have had to have come about by some explicable, or ultimately explicable process. It couldn't have just jumped into existence spontaneously. That's the point. So, Professor Dawkins was not against intelligent design, just certain types of designers, such as God. So the 
the Hebrew God, the God of the Old Testament, he doesn't exist in your view. Certainly, I mean, that would be a very unpleasant prospect. And the trend of the trend of the Antichrist. There's nothing like that. Do you believe in any of the Hindu gods? How could you ask such a question? Could I? Why would I, given that I don't believe in any others? You don't believe in the Muslim God? No. Why do you even need to ask? Well, I'm just trying to be sure. So you don't believe in any God anywhere? Any God anywhere would be completely incompatible with 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 anything that I've said in I'm just trying to make sure you don't believe in any God anywhere. What if you, if after you died, you ran into God? He said, what have you been doing, Richard? I mean, what have you been doing? I haven't tried to be nice to you. I gave you a multi-million dollar paycheck over and over again with your book, and look what you did. Bertrand Russell was at that point put to him. He said um, something like, Sir, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? But if the intelligent design people are right, God isn't him. We may even be able to encounter God through science, if we have the freedom to go there. What could be more intriguing than that? We take freedom for granted here in the United States. Freedom is what this country is all about. So any kind, a designer's okay if it's an alien civilization that does the designing, but not God. And of course, then the question is, well, where did that alien civilization come from? Well, by some natural process, he explained, that we don't know. I, I, I'm showing you these things just to, uh, well, and to encourage you that this is all they've got. These are the top guys in the field that are writing the books and are highly respected. They're writing the journal articles and these are how they answer these questions. They really don't have an answer from the paradigm in which they operate. So a guy like Dawkins could look at all this fine tuning that we've just talked about and it doesn't say anything to him. I'm reminded of a joke I heard about Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. They were on a camping trip, and after a few <clears throat> glasses of wine around the campfire, <clears throat> they turned in, went to sleep in their tent. And then <clears throat> in the middle of the night, they uh, looked up, and awoke, you know, they awoke, and they looked up at the stars, and just a magnificent, clear night in a high in the mountains where, and it wasn't all wiped out by city light. A striking uh, sight. So Holmes turns to Watson and says, Watson, what do you see? Watson says, oh, I see millions of stars. What do you deduce from this? Well, astronomically, I see there are millions of galaxies, stars, and probably millions of planets. Astrologically, I see that Saturn, Saturn appears in the constellation Leo, and I see the constellations Orion and the Pleiades. Meteorologically, I see that it'll probably be a beautiful day tomorrow. Chronologically, 
I can see that it's about 3 a.m. in the morning. Holmes turns to Watson and says, Watson, you idiot, someone has stolen our tent. (laughs) Now, Dawkins, like Watson, could see the particulars, the fine-tuned constants, the Goldilocks zone, the galactic habitable zone. But he totally missed the universals. He couldn't see what those things were saying. And the Bible talks about that. Okay, let me read this one quote. Habitability and discoverability, like winning the lottery twice in a row to find observers just where they can best make diverse discoveries is doubly telling. Watson can observe. He can see all this. The scientists today can uh, see. Uh, This is the sort of universe that an intelligent agent would have some interest in designing. A universe in which his created beings could perceive or see his work is, is how the argument goes. Imagine some explorers that climb, I can't remember the name of the mountain, uh, a, but in Hawaii, and they go to the top of this mountain, and when they get up there, they find a telescope. And I think that's the Wilson Observatory, I may be wrong, but it's one of the well-known uh, telescopes that astronomers use. Now, why did they locate the telescope on top of the mountain? Because that's the best place for seeing stars. You, the, the earth just happens to be located in one of the best places in the universe for observing. This suggests purpose. We were placed here to observe something. Why? According to the Bible, he wants us to see his glory. And this leads us to the eternal purpose of God. According to the Bible, it's that his glory might be manifested. We're going to talk about that more uh, tomorrow morning. And I want to close by looking a little bit at Psalm 19. Because it gives us several indicators about the glory of God. You're all familiar with the passage, the heavens declare the glory of God, the uh, firmament declares the work of his hands. 
day after day pours forth speech. Uh, his message or word has gone out to all the world. His utterance to the end of the world. Okay, so is that as David lay looking at the stars in a thousand BC, he could say, "What is man that you are mindful of him?" But a message was going out. He could see the glory of God demonstrated in the creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day they pour forth, pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the earth. And this means that men are without excuse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. See, that's what, in my opinion, uh, that Dawkins and uh, some of these men are doing. They're looking right at it and saying, I don't buy it. I've got to have another explanation. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they're without excuse. When Bertrand Russell stands before God and God says, why didn't you believe in me? And Russell responds, well, there wasn't enough evidence. That was the story we just told. Uh, there was evidence for someone that wanted to look at it. And that's ultimately a moral issue. It's, it's, it's a choice of the heart. There are certain implications of seeing that evidence as pointing to a creator. It involves uh, submitting oneself and obeying that creator and worshiping and honoring him. And the human heart does not want to do that. It will fabricate anything to suppress that truth. How do they do it? For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. But we need more than general revelation to understand, should be Psalm 19, the purposes of God. We need special revelation. We need the creator to reveal to us what his purposes are. And that's what we're going to take a look at in just a moment. But I want us to break here. You've been very patient. Uh, tried to intersperse it with some movies. <laughs> I tell you what, uh, when I see this stuff and I look at the, that beauty, I want to sing. Let's stand and sing How Great Thou Art.
Okay, I want to begin to focus more on why we're here and uh, God's purposes. We've talked about the evidence from general revelation, fine-tuning. All seems to point to purpose in the universe. We were... Uh, there is a creator, a designer, and he had a reason. One of those reasons was that he wanted to be observed. He wanted his handiwork to be seen. And the uh, probabilities of uh, life are astronomically small, we concluded in the last lecture. However, I need to stand corrected on one thing. I want to be fair and balanced like Fox News and I have a startling announcement that came in the National Enquirer. Apparently, a star child was the sole survivor of a UFO that slammed into the desert in a mesa. The charred bodies of four adult occupants, among them perhaps the newborn's parents, were also found at the site. Since that time, now this was in 1993, the child has been raised at a military base by a loving nurse and tutored by top scholars from around the world. Uh, the child's name is Amy, and uh, she's doing well. She uh, started uh, calculus and now speaks 17 languages. Notice uh, the interesting fingers that Amy has. Now, I hope you're not taking me seriously. <laughs> but, you know, I wanted to be fair and balanced because this was in the National Enquirer recently. God's eternal purpose is the manifestation of his glory. We talked about the voice of general revelation. Now we're going to start looking at special revelation. The law of the Lord is perfect. This is out of Psalm 19. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Now we're going to deal with four questions in the next hours tomorrow morning. What was God doing in eternity past? Why did Satan fall? How did God respond to the Satan's fall? And why should I care about any of this? And I'm going to deal with just one of these issues, God's pre-creation work, and then we'll break in about 30 minutes and go home. Uh, what was God doing before Genesis 1-1? Augustine answered that question. He said he was preparing hell for people who asked those kinds of questions. <laughs> But the first thing we know from the scriptures is that he was in loving fellowship with the other members of the Trinity. Now let's unpack that a minute. It's often been said that no culture rises above its concept of religion. And no religion has ever risen above its concept of God. I love uh, Tozer's knowledge of the holy. And he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea 
of God. We tend to move in a kind of, uh, by a secret law of the soul, uh, to move toward our image of God. Now, the media calls God the higher power. (laughs) They just can't bring themselves to say God or Jesus. So it's a higher power, so they won't offend anybody, you know. And Einstein called him the old one. Uh, We've all heard the phrase that God created man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. But it's in this doctrine of the Trinity that the Christian God differs profoundly from Muslim monotheism. It's commonly stated in the media that the Muslims believe in God. We all believe in the same God. We're just, uh, you know, going to get to him in different ways. But you have to ask the question, is Allah the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Of course, the answer is no. Recently, I was visiting my grandchildren, and apparently the Muslims had distributed a Koran to every house in the neighborhood. So I picked up this Koran, and I was reading through it. I remember back in the, I think it was the 80s, I read a lot of the Koran because I was interacting with a Muslim. And... <clears throat> This professor had translated it, and he had a very interesting introduction to the, uh, the Koran. And he cited a number of key passages out of uh, various books of the Koran. One of them says, Allah is the one and only one. Allah is absolute and alone. Allah begets not. He has no children, in other words. Allah was never begotten. Notice there's a little denial there of the birth of Christ. Apparently, uh, Muhammad misunderstood the meaning of only begotten. It does not mean physical begetting. It means the supreme one, the priority one, the the principal one. Uh, Allah has none comparable to him. Now think about all this for a moment. Imagine this eternally alone, lonely being that's existed from all eternity. The statement uh, of 1 John that says God is love is very basic to, to Christianity. But for love to be love, there has to be a subject who loves and an object who receives that love. Thus, if there were no multiplicity of persons in the Godhead before the creation of the world, God would be unable to love. For love to be love, there must be someone to love. The Trinity provides an answer. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Holy Spirit loves the Son. And the Son loves the Holy Spirit. There's an interplay. There's fellowship. There's unity. There's love, companionship among the Trinity. I love the way that, uh, I thought I had this quoted here, uh, that Charles Hodge puts it in his Systematic Theology. He says, a Unitarian, one-personed God might possibly have existed. And if revealed as such, it would have been our duty to acknowledge his lordship. 
But nevertheless, he would have always remained utterly inconceivable to us. One lone, fellowless, conscious being, subject without object, conscious person without environment, righteous being without fellowship or moral relations or sphere of right action. Where would there be to him a sphere of love, trust, truth, or sympathetic feeling? Before creation, eternal darkness. After creation, only an endless game of solitaire with worlds for pawns. The second thing that God was doing in eternity past of course, this happened instantly, is he implemented an eternal plan. Paul tells us in Ephesians, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So first of all, this, uh, this plan... There, there is a plan. He, he predestined everything according to a plan. And he works all things. Everything is included. Now, this is very comforting. It means there's no accidents. It means that God is not caught off guard. He says, oh my goodness, I didn't know that was going to happen. I better rush in and, and see if I can fix this. Uh, one day there will be a righting of all wrongs. And he said it is a plan. Actually, the, uh, the Greek word can be translated plan, but it has the connotation of counsel. In other words, he thought it out. Now, there's a problem here. In fact, there's two problems. The first problem is the problem of free will. If God has a plan, and it involves everything, then how can human beings be free? Now, those of you that have an answer to this, I'd like to talk to you after the, the, uh, the meeting. <laughs> um, but here's a suggested perspective on it. There's three kinds of knowledge. First is simple knowledge. That means God knows all things actual and all things possible. All things that will be and all things that could be. Also, we talk about foreknowledge. Now, this is a knowledge of all things that will be, things that will actually happen. It's virtually the same as predestination. But back in the 1500s, the Jesuits began to talk about middle knowledge as they were trying to think through this problem of sovereignty and free will. Middle knowledge is a knowledge of what would happen in all hypothetical circumstances involving free and therefore unpredictable beings. God knows what every individual would freely do in every possible situation in which that individual could find himself. Since God knows what we will freely decide to do in every possible set of circumstances, he chose a plan in which individuals freely chose to do exactly according 
to the plan that he thought out. Now, this requires enormous complexity, enormous intelligence, omniscience, in fact. Now, the second problem with all this is the problem of evil. The atheist, this is the number one reason why atheists deny Christianity. How could a loving God allow all this suffering? How could he permit evil and suffering? The argument goes like this, major premise. Uh, God is omniscient, so he knows evil exists. He's omnipotent. He has the power to remove it. And he's loving. He doesn't want it. Minor premise, evil and suffering exist. Conclusion, the God you're talking about does not. And when you read uh, books by the uh, atheists, by the evolutionists, uh, they always come back to this. And admittedly, this is a difficult problem. In fact, I would say in my own life, uh, although I've resolved this now, uh, in the past, this has been a major stumbling block for me. Imagine for a moment, though, that the universe is a giant philharmonic orchestra. The stars, the galaxies, the planets, the individual actions, good and bad, are all instruments. You've got violins, drums, pianos, organs, flutes. And they're all playing a symphony. And the symphony is entitled The Glory of God. Beautiful symphony. And let's say that you're an usher. Your job has been to seat people at the symphony. And you've been doing this for several billion years. And one day you come home, let's say you're married, and uh, you come home and your wife says, well, Bill, what would you do today? Oh, well, you know, I sat people at the beautiful symphony, the glory of God. Wow, but you've been doing that for several billion years. Anything new or anything different happened today? Well, yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, there was something. Well, what? Well, I did something I'd never done before. I listened. Oh, well, how'd you like it? I didn't like it at all. Well, how long did you listen? Oh, I don't know, a minute or two. Bill, do you mean you pass judgment on a symphony that's been going on for billions of years by only tuning in on a couple of minutes of it? Yeah. Well, do you think that's a valid basis for judgment? Well, I don't care. That's just the way I see it. Now, this is the argument from our finitude. And the argument essentially says, is it possible that beyond our ability to comprehend, beyond, that there's facts, there's perspectives, there's reasons for all of this that we simply do not know about. But once we arrive, once we get to heaven, we'll say, ah, oh, I see how all of this ultimately had your good hand in it. Now, that's part of the answer. I think that the, the turning point for me personally is when I realized that God was not distant, uninvolved, 
in this problem. In fact, God became a man and he subjected himself to the very suffering and pain and agony that we ourselves go through. He was not detached. He's involved. He's involved in our pain. He's not a distant observer, uh, uninterested in the struggle that we go through. And as I reflected on Christ, uh, who reveals God, and that gives me confidence because I can trust him and what he said to believe the things that I don't understand. God has revealed himself to me in Christ. And if that's what God is like, and he is God, and I've seen that, and he died for me, that gives me perspective and confidence to trust him for the things that I don't yet understand. Now, we could spend an hour on this, but I just wanted to share a couple of perspectives that, that have been helpful to me. The third thing that he did is he created angels. Now, this is an inference, not a specific statement, but I'm looking at Job 38, 4-7, where out of the whirlwind, God says to Job, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. And while he was creating, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. There's a number of other references in the scripture to the fact that the angels, the angelic realm, was already in existence when God created the current universe. So apparently there was a pre-Genesis 1-1 universe of some sort. We have very little information, almost none about it. But it obviously existed because God was in it and so were the angels. So it's a valid inference, even though we don't know the detail. The third thing is he pointed his son as the mediator. That's the third thing he was doing in eternity past. We're told in 1 Peter 1, 20-21, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. A third thing that he was doing is he prepared, or fourth, I guess, he prepared kingships for his servant kings. This is found in the uh, sheep and the goats judgment in Matthew 25, where when the Lord Jesus returns, there will be sheep and goats. Oh, my battery. Okay, We're going to be out of juice here, but that's okay. We're just about out of... (laughs) I should have plugged this thing in. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now that word, the kingdom, there's no the in the Greek text. It probably should be rendered something like a kingship or a sphere of rule or responsibility. In other words, in eternity past, God saw those Christians who would faithfully persevere to the end of life. And he prepared special spheres of authority for them in the future reign of God's servant kings. Vassal, subordinate kingships within the kingdom of heaven. And notice, this inheritance is based on works. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. In other words, the reason that they're going to receive this inheritance, these vassal subordinate kingships, is because of their uh, charity to the poor. Uh, just, Just another of many verses that shows that the inheritance is not heaven, 
but it is something in addition to heaven, a higher enhanced experience of heaven that's conditioned upon good works. And then finally, he created the pre-Genesis 1-1 universe. And he implemented his eternal plan. Now, I'm going to stop there because I think it's getting late. And I just wanted to introduce those thoughts. And we'll pick this up in more detail in the morning. What, what time we got here, by the way? It's uh, Yeah, we need to wind things up so you guys can get home. Um, However, if you would like to interact for about five minutes or so, we could do that before we finish up for the evening, and then we can pick it up in the morning. So if you have any questions right now, let's uh, get into it a little bit. But if you just want to get home, that's great, too. I understand. Your time, so let me know. Yes, sir. A.E. Wilder-Smith, yeah, he had three earned doctorates, uh, one in, he wrote his dissert, one dissertation in French, it was in chemistry, organic chemistry, another in biochemistry in German, and then a third in pharmacology at, uh, I think it was the University of London or something. Uh, in, in Austria, when he came to speak, it was Herr Doctor, 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 Professor A.E. Wilder-Smith, that's how they would introduce him. <laughs> <laughs> I, actually, I spent a week with him up in uh, Amsterdam. We were both in the same hotel. We were uh, doing a movie for uh, the for Dutch TV on creationism, and uh, they wanted me there because I wrote a book many years ago on the vapor canopy, and uh, so they wanted, you know, the just to interview me. I was I, I think I had about 120 seconds. <laughs> But he's he's a neat guy, very intelligent. Yes, ma'am. How did I become a Christian? Briefly, uh, I came to college primarily to uh, have a party and study electrical engineering on the side. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I had great parents, but uh, I had no exposure to Christianity. I think I'd been to church once or twice in my life. And I was going nowhere. I was extremely immature and uh, basically was just your stereotypical animal house ATO fraternity guy. Um, at the end of my freshman year, I was at a, uh, one of our keg parties, and there was a young lady there. His name was Mikey. And she wasn't uh, smoking pot or boozing it like the rest of us were. In fact, she seemed a little out of place, and she was. Uh, I went up to her afterwards and asked her, you started talking to her, and I asked her if she'd go out with me. She understandably seemed a little hesitant, but... She said, yes, she was going to a neighboring college. And I drove up there the following Friday to pick her up. And she'd been in the car about five minutes, and she started talking to me about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, this was not what I had in mind for the evening. 
But we spent about three hours. I don't even think we went went to a movie or anything, and we went out to dinner and talked. It was very interesting. I, I couldn't believe it, but you know, I I never heard people talk like that. And for the next uh, I don't know three, four, five months, we went out regularly, and I fell very much in love with her. Probably the first girl I ever had those kind of feelings for. And uh, just prior to my uh, sophomore year, she was killed in an automobile accident. And this completely destroyed me. I, I was so immature, I had no way of coping with this, and I basically drank away my sophomore year, flunked a couple of courses, just trying to numb the pain. Uh, right after she died, I went down to her home to see her parents. And I'll never forget how they greeted me. I, I got out of that taxi. They lived about 45 miles away. And uh, Jane, Mom Thomas, I call her mom now. She's my spiritual mom. Came out of the house, tears in her eyes, threw her arms around me, and she said, Jody, we want you to know that we understand the pain you're going through, and we really love you, and we want to help you. And I was just flabbergasted. It was their daughter, and yet they were genuinely concerned about me. And we went in the house, and uh, she started talking to me a little bit about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I, that was the second time in my life I'd ever heard people talk like that. And I, uh, they really reached out to me, and I came down to their home uh, one weekend a month during my sophomore year. And Mom and I would stay up till the wee hours of the morning arguing about the, the heathen in Africa and all the contradictions in the Bible. And, and uh, she was a Methodist, so she didn't have a whole lot of answers, but she, uh, uh, that, that wasn't kind to say. I, 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 I didn't mean it like that. But, but uh, they really loved me. I, I remember listening to Papa pray. It was the first time I'd ever heard a man pray. It really impacted me. It was just a simple prayer. And Well, I'd flunked two courses, so I had to retake them in summer school. And uh, we were living in, with a fraternity brother of mine. We, had, we were in the ATO house all summer, just the two of us. And we'd go to class in the morning and then go get a six-pack of half quarts and get totally stoned and party at night. And I did that for 21 nights in a row. And at the end of that time, I just was disgusted with myself. And I can remember crying out to God, because I'd read the New Testament that year. I mean, Mom was after me. She, you know, I had to go see all these pastors and everything. And I actually read the New Testament. And uh, I said, God, you know... I've been trying to figure this out for a year. I've been genuinely interested, but I don't know you in any way. So, at any rate, I uh, went down to their home right after uh, that summer and finished those courses. And uh, she wanted me to go to this Christian college conference at Mount Hermon. Now, going to a Christian college conference was not my idea of fun. Uh, further, I said, well, Mom, I just don't have any money. She says, no problem. I want you to paint the trim on our house, and I'll pay you for it. The problem was this conference was uh, about 50 miles from my home in Sunnyvale, California. It was just before I had to go back to school, so I didn't have an excuse. You know. Anyway, I got down there, and I ran into about 150 college kids. They were really sharp, 
did great speakers, and uh, they talked a lot about a relationship with Christ. And at the last night of that conference, <clears throat> I went up to the uh, one of the speakers and I said, you know, I think I'm ready. I, I, I think I believe this stuff, but I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to do. So he explained the gospel to me and I said, OK, well, look, I've never prayed. Uh, would you pray out loud and I'll follow you? I mean, I was an evangelist dream, you know, <laughs> and uh, so we went on a mountaintop and he prayed and I followed him and uh, trusted Christ. And I remember coming down off the mountain, just kind of wondering, did it take? Because <laughs> I didn't feel a thing, you know. But I did notice beginning the next morning, I was uh, all these kids were out having something they called a quiet time and. I was part of the club, so I figured I'd better do this now. So I, I got my Bible, went out in the woods, and I started reading this thing. And boy, the Bible just came alive. I mean, I'd been reading it before, but it was just kind of a struggle. All of a sudden, this thing was living. I began to notice a difference. And that was the Spirit of God that was bringing illumination of the Scripture to my heart. And I was followed up by Campus Crusade. They got me speaking in fraternity houses, so that put me on the line. I remember how nervous I was. And... I was very well known on the campus for things other than commitment to Christ. And, uh, but God really changed me. It was just dramatic for me. Now, a lot of people don't have that, but I, I just came from such a pit. And uh, so it was a dramatic, life-transforming decision. And while at that conference, I met a young lady named Linda Nelson. And a year later, she was my wife. And Linda Nelson was the best thing that ever happened to me. And uh, we have a great marriage, four kids, ten grandkids. And uh, we've been married 48 years this September. Gets better every year. Okay, that takes enough time. I talked too long about myself. But I realize that's kind of interesting to people. So I'll see you in the morning. <laughs>